Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Justin Poitras, with a biblical critique of a popular strategy for cultural engagement. This kind of cultural um, engagement style, this philosophy, it is a distortion of something that is very biblical. Justin Poitras, next. Boise, Idaho pastor Justin Poitras is concerned about approaches Christians sometimes take to engaging various aspects of culture. One of these strategies is known as the Seven Mountain Mandate. He writes about his concerns about it in the piece, How Evangelicals Lose Will Make All the Difference, a critique of the Seven Mountain Mandate. Pastor Poitras, tell us the background to this piece. Yeah, so uh, I I have to be uh, straightforward, and we were talking about before, I, I backed into the particular focus on the Seven Mountain Mandate uh, as kind of touching on a, a larger issue, right, that, that, I, that I think is really the point, but I, I think it can help to start, right, like, like anything, when you're dealing with large ideas, you, you drill into some of a specific iteration of that. Right. And these large scale ideas, right, they have trickle down effect. And so what happens is, okay, you've got something like the seven mountain mandate and it's um, it's a stand in. Right. I I think that the reality is you have a lot of people who uh, who don't necessarily adhere to or or know anything about this. Right. I think that's that's fairly common, but they're captivated by a lot of the same ideas, the same rhetoric, the same approach to basically we're, we're, we're dealing with cultural engagement, right? Christian cultural engagement. And so the, the Seven Mountain Mandate in in some, right, this was a book by, well, there was a book called Invading Babylon in 2013. I have not read the book, but uh, by Lance Wallnau, Bill Johnson, or, or two key figures. Uh, but they mentioned the Seven Mountain mandate the mountains come from basically these mountains as they picture them of um, cultural influence right culture shaping so among those you have religion family government education media arts and entertainment and business all right and so uh, part of what I mentioned in the article is at at some level like that's just kind of a, a list of what makes up culture, right? Yeah. That those are the things, right? And uh, so the idea, the ideology, really is this. This is a call. It's kind of a uh, a battle summons, if you will, to Christians to say, "Hey, get serious about we're we're losing, right? We've lost power. We've lost influence. Here's the mountains of cultural influence. So if you as Christians, we have this charge, we have this command from God, this is this is their kind of thinking, to um, to, to rule, to, to triumph, to um, to spread the the you know the Christian lifestyle and the good news, 
um, and the, all of those accompanying benefits of Christianity. And so, and, and here are the ways that you'll be able to do that, right? Here, here's the, the streams that through, you'll be able to influence culture through these. So get into these, get positions of power within these structures. So that's, um, that's kind of the, the general idea. Uh, but, you know, as it, as it trickles down, to people such as such as my friend, mm-hmm. right? It's it's coming through. I think what's fascinating to me, especially, I, I'm always fascinated by this, right? As somebody, you know, as I've gotten into ministry world, you get sequestered, you get bubbled into your your ministry mm-hmm. life, um, and so it's just it's very helpful, I think, to understand and remember how is Christianity being perceived by people who who really are completely outside of it. Right, they they just they're they're not in the church at all. They're not they're not in those circles. They are seeing Christianity through the lens of our culture, and and this is not the only way that Christianity is perceived. But th- this is a big one mm-hmm. of of this is what Christians are about right now. Um, and you know, obviously, certain certain political figures get get cl- you know lumped into this yeah. right, as well as pastors. Um, as well as other kind of you know spiritual leaders and and people hear these kinds of messages and and this is what they associate and it's it, it is frightening in some ways well that's what I wanted to ask you. you you mentioned your friend who you reference in this piece and, and, yeah. and now he actually this is a longtime friend from from high school days he heard a podcast in which this seven mountain mandate was discussed that he actually began to consider Christianity something of an existential threat to his family and he wondered if he should actually yes. fight against Christianity yes. and yes. Uh, tell us about that I mean you interacted with him about this uh, yeah. like kind of, kind of what, what he's thinking this is I think the compelling inward thing to me right where it's like there is a practical you're, you're just, you're seeing, right? This isn't a theoretical thing anymore, right? You you see somebody actually perceiving and responding to Christianity or want to in, in the polar opposite way, right? Of, of what the gospel is. Now, at some level, you can't control people's hearts, right? And people, Jesus has made it clear, people will respond with hate uh, and people will respond with rejection. Okay, right? You know, you got to stand by the truth. And I, I think the other thing that can be said, and this came out in my conversation with my friend, we talked a good deal about this, it's in the article as well, but it, it's tricky because really a lot of this kind of cultural um, engagement style, this philosophy, it is a distortion of something that is very biblical. Right? And uh, I don't know if you're familiar at all, or, or maybe you know listeners. But there, Abraham Kuyper, right? Is a uh, you know he he is famous. Is a guy is from the you know I guess late 19th century, um, famous theologian, right? Also, uh, I think prime minister Netherlands, right? Something along those lines. Wrote and thought a lot about cultural engagement, and he he did this very well of understanding. Hey, your Christian faith should intersect everything that's happening culturally. And so there's there's a right approach to that to see yes you know culture does matter right and and I should care about culture and as a Christian I should I should want to work for the benefit of culture right but then it takes that rightful impulse and it kind of supercharges it right to to the point where it becomes like this, this is how Christianity has to advance Right, we have to win. We've got to maintain control, and that is where 
right? I mean, you just, I, I don't even have to list, right, all of the, the misuses of the ways historically that this has happened, right? I mean, the Catholic Church being a, being a very obvious one, right, in, in the abuses that have happened historically when you say our power has to come through cultural spheres. We've got to retain these, and that's what it's about. And you, you hollow out the gospel message, which is that Jesus and his followers came to suffer and die and give up their life. That's the gospel, right? That, that Jesus is this sacrifice for sins, this, this reconciliation you know, b- between us and God, and, and he sets us this model of the pathway to exaltation is through humiliation, right? It's not seize exaltation, seize the power. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's really interesting. And so, as you said, this is a 2013 book that uh, put forward this Seven Mountain Mandate, the 2013 book, Invading Babylon. And, okay, 10, ten years ago, is this the message of the book? I mean, kind of how you described it, it doesn't sound terribly new, but is it is it gaining some kind of new traction? Is this message spreading for some reason right now? My understanding, again, and I, I'm by no means right, an expert on, on the Seven Mountain Mandate, right? And my, and so, but my understanding is yes, right? And mm. I, I think from what, again, limited research that I have gotten on it is that there are, and I, and I think this is this is where, again, I just, you just want to be honest here. This is where, like, how, how do things happen, right? And how, how do people pick up on things, right? What, what the secular media is interested in I mean, they're interested in a number of things, but what will really get their attention is politics, right? And, that's, yeah. and, and so that's, you know, that's what's going to grasp most people's attention. And so when certain political figures rise to prominence, I'm not just talking about Trump here, right? Um, you know, there's, there's other people, right? And they start espousing things like these, or they start mentioning it. That's what catches people's attention. Be like, what is this thing? Where are people coming from? Now, again, how much of these political candidates read or, or distilled all this particular book? I, I don't know, nor does it really matter, right? Because what I, I think really what matters is the, is the tone, right? The overall tone of how do you as a Christian approach culture and, and, and the rest of, you know, the, <laughs> the rest of people who aren't Christians, right? Are these people your enemies who need to be stomped out and crushed? Right? Or, or are these people that you care for and you love and you are willing to sacrifice for? Right? Those are, I mean, those are vastly yeah. different messages. And one, I believe, is the gospel, and one is, is a distortion of, of how you engage culture. Well, the Seven Mountains Mandate, I want to ask you about the Seven Mountain Mandate, the biblical foundation for it. But uh, I'm wondering the, the, the seven spheres or seven mountains, which the book talks about, which you enumerated for us religion, family, government, education, media, arts, and entertainment, and business they would sound like the kinds of places in culture that believers would enter into hoping to be what Jesus said we are, salt and light, bringing uh, our, our Christian uh, values and even the gospel to yeah. what we do. So, uh, I mean, in one sense, it, it has a sound of reasonableness to it. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's why I think it's so it is so valuable to understand what's being said and and to get the nuances of this because exactly right I think Christians have a call like exactly like you said be salt and light engage the world be in these things right don't don't just sequester 
right? And so typically, right, that you talk about cultural engagement and you have these spectrums, right, of, of sequestering and, um, you know, what, what was that, the Benedict option, right? Oh, yeah. And just go, you know, go off, right. be alone, draw back from the world, mm -hmm. right? And that's one extreme, right? But the other extreme, I think, can be this side of things, right? That where, where there's a sense of, you know, I, I think triumphalism is the easy word, right? Of just like God has given us the world, right? Um, and and all the world is is inherited by Christians, and and we are meant to rule and we are meant to reign. It just doesn't really quite account for the the cross shaped life, um, where yes, you you are going to rule, but but your your rule is with Christ. Christ is seated above. And, and Christ does not promise, right? And I think this is where you get into some of the weeds of, of Revelation, mm. right? But, but I think practically speaking, it, it is problematic um, when, when you assume that the way that Christ's kingdom is going to advance is through getting and wielding the, the various controls of of cultural power, not not there. You you don't want to influence these things, right? As you said, be be salt and light. Uh, and I think the other thing that occurs to me, it's it's interesting. You study the Gospels and Jesus' various parables about um, the kingdom, right? His kingdom parables, and he talks about the kingdom of God a lot of times, and almost always, or or, or most of the time, he's using organic analogies, right? Something to do with farming, something to do with agriculture. Right, and and that's the imagery that he is trying to understand. Right, it's this salt and light. It's this seasoning. It's this sowing. It's this gradual growing and flourishing. Right, it's not a militaristic imagery that Jesus uses, except when he talks about his final victory um, when he when he comes again. Well, I'm wondering if you could at this point, maybe we should have done it sooner, but share for us the biblical foundation found in the book of Revelation for this seven mountain mandate. Yes, so uh, it's drawing from uh, Revelation 17, and, and, and there's this beast with seven heads and describes seven mountains, right? And so this is this picture, again, this is the interpretation, this is this picture of the beast, and, and again, it, it's a little bit off. It's not like way, way, way off there, as I think a lot of times Christians of all stripes have seen this beast as representing some form of governmental power, right, um, or cultural power, right, and, and that's just Babylon, right, it's just this great city of Babylon, it's the world, right, it's the power of the world, mm -hmm. and, and so it's not totally wrong, right, but it's saying these seven mountains are these seven various, right, uh, cultural places of influence, right, and so it, it's saying, okay, well, these are the ones, these are the ones that we have got to conquer because you know, the, the, the beast is conquered, right? But it, it's missing, first of all, the Christ, Christ is the one that conquers the beast, not the church. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we, the church, are, are, are saved by his work. And I, and I think, and th this is not maybe the time to get in all the, the views of Revelation, right? But, you know, the way that I view it, right, is that the whole, the whole book is a picture book, right? And, and it's meant to, to be seeing these larger pictures um, like, like you stare at a painting, right? And you are a painting that's meant to convey some sort of meaning of what's happening, but, but you're not you're not really meant to take this literally and try to act your life on a painting. 
right? There, there's an interpretation involved. And when you lose sight of that, it creates all kinds of problems, I think, for, for how you read Revelation. And you say uh, in your piece how evangelicals lose will make all the difference a critique of the seven mountain mandate that um, this mandate is ultimately built upon a dual misunderstanding of scripture and of christ's purposes in the world what i'm so first of all right the the misunderstanding of scripture right that i that i mentioned there in in revelation i think it's it's a hyper literalized understanding of of what this beast is and again it's replacing the role of christ with the church it's also misunderstanding the the role uh, or sort of the the purpose, Christ's purpose in this world, right, is, um, right, he says, and I, I kind of mentioned some of these, he says, my kingdom is not of this world, right? That, I mean, that's very clear. When Peter says, this will never happen to you, right, meaning the cross, he says, get behind me, Satan, yeah. right? Because the implication is Satan's ploy is use worldly power, right? And it's just... And I think that this is what's it's it saddens me because it it is a failure of imagination. I think of Christians you know, like the the only way that the gospel can advance is if 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 we are sitting in the Ivy League schools and and we are running Hollywood and we are you know we have the Senate and the House right and it's just like you know how big is God right is is <laughs> just. I mean, just look at look at the people of Israel during exile. I mean, look at look at most of the course of the church. They're not winning, right? From from an earthly perspective, mm-hmm. yeah. they're not holding these powers, and yet they are triumphing in a different spiritual way. Do you have any idea how widespread an embracing of this particular belief is of the Seven Mountain Mandate? I mean, it maybe people don't call it that. Maybe they're trying to do right the same thing or maybe they do call it that but i'm not terribly familiar with that with that label yeah yeah no i do not i and and that's why i I backed into this label right because i don't think there's i my impression right is what you know whatever that's worth i don't think there's a lot of people adhering to this and being yes the seven mountain mandate or necessarily preaching hey this seven and they're saying that by by name but this idea, you know, it's interesting as well, feedback that I got, I got some emails about this article um, that I think a number of people, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm fabricating this, <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. I, I see it and it concerns me that it is part of and exacerbating the growing polarization of this world, right? Yeah. It, because it is, it is a either or we 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 must win everybody else is is the enemy and needs to be crushed um and it's it's that sort of idea right and it is it is a polarization it is a politicization um of of christianity that you don't have to look far at all to see that and i i think that is um a sad it, it, it there's there's many things right it's sad it misappropriates the gospel message, and I think from a practical level, it it endangers. It does endanger Christians or future generations because people start like like if you're on the outside and this is all you imagine that Christianity is is a we must win. We will take you know throw out the rule book right because we we've got to get you know whatever you know lie cheat steal whatever it takes because we've got to take these power places back. And it's like, yeah, I would be alarmed by that. Christians would be alarmed by that, right? If somebody was saying, I mean, it's kind of like some of the alarm that we feel about, um, you know, Muslim nation states, 
right? Where there's a, there's a tight fusion, right? And people are even claiming, you know, you look at Christian nationalism, that, that used to be a joke term, mm-hmm. right? Uh, people are now openly claiming, yes, I am a Christian nationalist, right? And, and so it's this fusing of the goals of Christianity with the goals of a, of a, of a nationalistic sort of um, government purpose. And, and that's not to say don't be politically active, right? Or don't vote or don't vote your conscience, right? But it's this confusion of the purposes of Christ, abundantly obvious in the Bible, are not the purposes of America, right? Or, or any sort of empire that's existed in this world. And I think furthermore, I, I mentioned the, the, the name of the, the title of the article, How Evangelicals Lose, yeah. make all the difference. Look, you know, God can do a miraculous work, but I, 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 I have not yet talked to somebody, you know, cultural, uh, somebody does cultural analysis, pastor, missionary, anyone who, who is saying anything else except Christianity is, is losing, Christianity is declining, right? Th- this is happening. Right, and so the question to me becomes: How do Christians respond? Is this is this sort of a hit the panic button and say, you know, oh no, we're we're losing all of these positions of influence, um, and what's going to happen to Christianity? Or, or are we trusting God <laughs> that that God really has? He's going to take care of His kingdom and His people. Well, to the title of your piece, "How Evangelicals Lose," will make all the difference. Uh, the subtitle. A critique of the seven mountain mandate and so as i understand it and what you were just explaining that you believe that it's a greater witness how we respond to this losing whether it's losing politically or just losing gradually maybe increasingly uh, cultural influence how we yes. respond to that is a greater witness than if we had in fact taken those spheres of power yes. which of course as you said is debatable whether that's supposed to be our our goal or not yeah you know, hugely, right? I mean, again, it just doesn't, I'm not saying anything new as far as like you look at the history of the church and how the church advances through persecution. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what all we are, that the church is built through the blood of the martyrs, right? Yep. We don't want that, right? And and certainly we don't want people being physically killed, right? But at the same time, we've got to, this is the means that God tends to use. And you can just, it doesn't take any great insight to see practically you even look inside your own experience. You know what's compelling? It's not somebody grabbing for a position of power and then using that to serve their interests. Be like, oh, that, that that must be right, right? What's compelling? What causes people to wake up or take notice is somebody being marginalized, someone being defeated, somebody being persecuted, somebody being unfairly treated, right? And Peter talks about this in First Peter. Right, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're unfairly treated, and you respond to that with grace and with love. Then, so wow, that's supernatural, right? Grabbing hold of a position of power is not supernatural. And you believe right now, uh, in this present time, this present moment in 2023, that American evangelicals have—I think you called it a golden opportunity—as we, as it seems like, our 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 influence is shrinking. I think it's really obvious. You could We could discuss numerous things that make that pretty clear. But what is that golden yeah. opportunity that you see? Yeah, it's it's precisely this, right? It's it's like, how how do you, I mean, you think about like a board game, right? You know, yeah. how do you, how do you go down, right? You can see sometimes you these longer board games, you don't lose all at once, right? You lose slowly. Right. And, and you can see it and kind of everybody else around you can see it and it's happening. 
And you know what is a when it's a testimony, right? You know, yeah, it it takes a lot to be a, a gracious winner. It takes a lot more to be a gracious loser, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know how how are you responding to that loss of influence, loss of power, right? Are you throwing a tantrum about it? Because then you're just like ever that that is a very natural human response right you lose a job you lose influence you're shut out right you don't you're not able to access the elite institutions or the mainstream media right anybody is going to feel like hey this is this is really terrible this is wrong that that's that's normal yeah. and and that's not to say we don't try to um use use influence wisely right i i, I do i do think there's there but also it, it has to do with an internal grace in your tone that is reflective of you know how Christ dealt with opposition and and going to the cross. Uh, I do want to ask you about uh, what you call an opportunity too for this generation of believers. I think you use the phrase charting a course uh, for the next generation, a trail of of faithfulness in the midst of challenges all around us. How would you describe that, uh, that trail of faithfulness? Yeah, I think it's, it, it is this golden opportunity I think we have in a polarized world, right, where increasingly everybody on all sides is looking around and being like, is there anyone who gets this? Is there anyone who isn't just black and white? It's me versus the world. I must win the power play politics, the critical theory, right? It's all about power, right? Is, is there anybody who's, who's either, who, who's doing something of graciously engaging where you don't just throw up your hands, right? And you just kind of have your little pout in a corner. Or on the other hand, you say, you know, let's just torch this. You know, I'm going to burn down everything in front of me. I'm going to own the libs, right? Whatever it is, Right. Like, is there anybody on any side who understands how to graciously engage anymore? Because people just don't see that. Or how, how do you disagree with somebody well? Where is the models of that? Do you have any models? Can you point to anybody, anything? <laughs> I don't see a lot in uh, a lot in, in mainstream media. Although I will say, you know, what, what's interesting, Joe Rogan, you know, obviously you're maybe familiar, right? most watched podcasts. You listen to him, you watch him, he will have people on of all stripes and he will he will disagree with them and he will get passionate sometimes, but mostly and I, I have you know, I've watched him is limited, but I think one of the reasons why he is so compelling is that he it is clear that he is able to have a gracious disagreement with somebody. Right? I mean that and that that's somebody in the secular world yeah, who right. does that. But it, it it is rare. And I do think there are pastors, there's a number of pastors, you're you're kind of your a lot of your prominent, you know, run run of the mill, you know, people like um, people like Keller, people like John Piper, right? I, you know, um, I, I I hear and see them generally speaking engaging with disagreement in a in a kind way without backing down and watering down truth. Well, Pastor Poythers, thank you for joining us today here on uh, His People on the Pilgrim Radio Network. And I'm wondering, would you have some final words of encouragement for for those listening regarding what you've been talking about my dad is is Vern Poitras right and he's I got I've got to put in a plug here he's written a book it's a very short book it's a very accessible book called the returning king hmm. on and it's just an interpretation of revelation 
but you know you can you can sum it up in, in almost you know two words. Jesus wins, <laughs> you know, and, and so you know we just we've got to believe that, uh, and that doesn't mean you don't have a call to be faithful uh, and and to to do what you believe is is honoring to Christ and follows your conscience. But I, I would encourage and hope, right, for me and for others, that that true, unshakable reality of Jesus does win, right? The more that that settles in our hearts, I, I think that that can maybe free us up, perhaps, hopefully, right, to just maybe take a breath and be like, it's, it's okay. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Pastor Justin Poitras, author of the piece, How Evangelicals Lose Will Make All the Difference, a critique of the Seven Mountain Mandate. You can read it by going to thegospelcoalition.org. Justin Poitras pastors All Saints Church in Boise, Idaho. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at this same time for another edition of His People.